A few weeks ago when Charlotte was baptized, I, uh, hadn't been, I, I had not known that it was customary for the parents of the one baptized to, after the service, stand in front and let people come and, and shake their hand and give an official greeting and welcome to Aria. And so in my negligence, I have then learned, and Ben and Tanya have graciously agreed to, right after the service, they'll be down here for a few minutes, uh, waiting and eager to let you all come and see Aria. She is a delight, so I would encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity. Luke chapter 8. Since today's passage deals a lot with the parable of the sower, let's rewind and begin reading uh, at verse 9. Verse 9, where Jesus explains the parable of the sower. I'm on page 1605, if you're using the Pew Bible. This is God's word given to his people for their good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Luke 8, verse 9. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and a good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. If you talk to any teacher, school teacher, really anyone who has a classroom setting, they will tell you that there is a constant struggle with the listening of their students. It's not just that your students hear them, hear what they are teaching, but that they listen carefully so that it doesn't go in one ear and out the other. Constant struggle for teachers. But you realize that as the the situation of importance rises in the teaching content, people sort of naturally tend to pay more attention. If you're taking a class on skydiving, you will listen very carefully at the lesson where they teach you how to open your parachute, just the way that things go. Thus, it should be no surprise to us that in the teaching of Jesus, particularly as he's teaching us about the kingdom of God in this parable, He wants to make sure that his people are listening carefully 
and paying careful attention. And it's not just to the parable itself. It's to all things found in the word of God. God's people are to listen and pay attention to how they are listening to the word of God. This parable, parable of the sower and the way that Jesus explains it and expounds upon it, teaches us about the kingdom of God. Answers questions like how does it function? How does it advance in the world? Why does it bear such a different character than other kingdoms? So when Jesus used the term kingdom, people in that time would have thought of various things. Big palaces, struggles of war, attempts to gain power and wealth. But all throughout Luke and in this parable and beyond, what Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of God is that it doesn't advance through those means. It advances through what seems to the world anyways, humble means. It's not even the signs and the wonders that Jesus performs that advance the kingdom of God. They lend credibility to his message, but what expands and grows the kingdom of God is the sowing the seed of the word. This parable of the sower highlights that it is the word of God taught and preached and proclaimed in the world that grows God's kingdom. Paul says later on that this, of course, seems like foolishness in the eyes of the world. Why such an emphasis on silly lectures that a pastor gives on Sunday morning, times when he seems to get too excited? The world says, what are you all doing? What's the deal with that? But what we find in God's word again and again and again is that there are the words and all that we need for faith and life. The word of God is all that we need for faith and life. Thus, we must listen to it with ears of faith. That's the exhortation from Jesus Christ, to listen with ears of faith. Jesus gives this explanation in the context of his parables, but he is looking beyond his own earthly ministry. And there is this question that arises in our minds and certainly in the minds of the disciples of Jesus. Why are you teaching in parables? What is the deal with all of this? Jesus has shown us, as we looked last week in the passage, that parables are a less clear way of communicating truth about God's kingdom. Some people think that Jesus was a, a master communicator who was able to bring out all of these illustrations. You know, if you're a, a preacher, uh, a lot of times you, you feel like you can sort of grasp the meaning of, of the text, but it's hard to think of illustrations that bring out and illumine its meaning to God's people. And some people think, wow, Jesus had such great illustrations with all of those parables. But Jesus did not speak in parables to illumine the meaning. It was a less clear way of teaching about his kingdom. And if we think about it, that is a perfect parallel to his earthly ministry, isn't it? Jesus, in certain ways, had to veil who he was. He would heal people, and sometimes he would say, do not go and tell everyone what I have done to you. He would rebuke demons who would confess him as the Lord. When he fed the 5,000 in the Gospel of John, it says that he withdrew from the crowds because they were wanting to force him to be king. There were times when people would demand from Jesus, just tell us clearly and plainly if you are the Messiah. Jesus, while he was clear about who he was, and certainly looking back through the text now, we see how clear he was about his teaching People were confused, and in some ways, Jesus kept his glory hidden. This was part of his humiliation, wasn't it? He came and he walked this earth as the Son of God, with many people not recognizing him as the Son of God. He came as one despised and rejected by men. 
and his parables become an instrument that show not only the nature of his earthly ministry, but also an instrument of punishment for those who reject Jesus. Fascinating look into the kingdom of God and God's sovereignty and salvation. Jesus uses the first two verses here in today's passage, starting at 16, to show that this this modus operandi of his ministry, teaching in parables, is not the way that it will always go. Have you ever wondered about that? Jesus taught in parables. Why don't we just have pastors speak to us in parables? Why don't Christians speak to each other in parables, right? What would, what would Jesus do? Why don't we just talk in parables all the time? And what we learn is that after Christ has been risen and ascended, after he showed the whole world the manner in which he would be made king, which was through a humiliating death and a triumphant resurrection, which was different than how everyone expected it, right? What he teaches is that after that, the gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed with absolute clarity and forthrightness. Go to the book of Acts, and what do you see? The apostles don't speak in parables. They go into the villages. They go to find people to tell them. This is the reality of sin. This is how you can be saved from your sin. Jesus Christ... All throughout the Old Testament, it was all pointing to him. He is the suffering servant. He is the crucified king. He is the risen and triumphant Lord. Every story whispered his name. Everything was pointing to him. And what Jesus is teaching us in these first two verses is that there will come a time when the word of his gospel will be clearly proclaimed out in the open so that everyone may understand. And this, of course, is the age in which we find ourselves now. The word of God, the Bible, the gospel, it's all meant to be proclaimed clearly. It's not just for pastors or for clergy. It's not for a select few. The Bible, doctrine, theology, It is good for God's people to learn about these things, and these things are to be opened up for God's people. You don't take a lamp, light it up, and then put it under your furniture. I have yet to see that on uh, the HGTV shows, right? You don't take a lamp, turn it on, put it under your bed or your couch, because the purpose of a lamp is to light up a room. And the purpose of the word of God is so that people may know this God and know him truly. And the age in which we find ourselves now is this age where the gospel, reconciliation through Jesus Christ, believing in what he has done, is to be openly proclaimed. God's word is the lamp that lights up the world. Jesus then teaches us that his use of parables was temporary. It paralleled his earthly ministry so that his glory, in a sense, would be hidden. But after he is raised from the dead and ascends on high, his glory is to be proclaimed. And that is what we are doing here today, brothers and sisters. We're freely proclaiming this message for anyone who would hear it. This is not a secret meeting. This is a public gathering to rejoice together in what God has done. And what God will do for all who turn to Jesus Christ in faith. There would come a time after Christ was raised where the lamp would illumine all of the world. And that was the call upon his apostles. That was a call upon his disciples to go out and proclaim that in Christ you are saved through faith. And that word faith 
is key in understanding what Jesus is doing here in this passage. In verse 18, Jesus says, consider carefully how you listen. Pay attention to. Pay attention to how you are listening. Be thinking about how you are receiving the things that you hear. This is a further expansion upon the parable of the sower. Remember, in the parable of the sower, there are four groups of people who hear the word. Four different groups of people who hear the word. But there is only one group of people who hear the word and understand it unto salvation, right? Consider back the various situations in the parable of the sower. The seed that falls upon the rocky soil in verse 13. Notice that uh, they hear the word and receive it with joy. They receive it with joy, but in a time of testing, they fall away. Joy. What is joy? Joy is an experience of gladness. In other words, there are some people who hear the word of God, have an experience of gladness, but because that emotional experience of gladness is all that accompanies their hearing, they are swept away in the trials of life. Emotional response to hearing the word of God is a very natural and a very good thing. If you believe the word of the gospel to be true, you, you can't not be joyful. It's gives great joy to hear about what God has done each time we come together, particularly today as we come to celebrate God's grace and his goodness. We are filled with joy. But if emotional experience is by itself, it does not have the depth that is needed to take root. Look at what is present in contrast to those who receive the word of faith in verse 15. We read that they have a noble and a good heart. We also see that they produce fruit in perseverance at the end of verse 15. This does not mean that they do not have joy. Of course, they hear God's word and are joyful, but there's something that goes beyond the emotional experience that can fade away and not be lasting. There is a depth of God's work in their very being that is producing Christian moral character and virtue. That pours forth into what the text calls perseverance. Perseverance, a word that comes up again and again and again in the scriptures. This is those who hear with ears of faith. Jesus says, be careful then how you listen. Listen with ears of faith. Listen to the word of God proclaimed to you. Listen with believing and faithful ears. This word for Persevering is a word, as I said, comes up again and again. It means steadfast endurance. Steadfast endurance, which is so central and important to the Christian life. It's such an important thing to understand when we ponder the eternal nature of the kingdom of God, when we think about all of the things in the world that try to pull us and our affections away from God, the one who deserves our love and affection. We see why steadfast endurance is so central and so emphasized in the New Testament. What is steadfast endurance? Steadfast endurance is the ability to cling to Jesus Christ and his promises alongside the recognition of two things, at least two things, but in our text particularly two things, that the pleasures of this life are fleeting and that the struggles of this life are temporary. To cling to Jesus Christ and to his promises amidst the recognition of two things. The pleasures of this life are fleeting and the struggles of this life are temporary. In the parable of the sower, who are the ones 
who walk away, that are swept away. They are swept away either by life's trials or their love gets choked out by the pleasures of this world. It's the point of all of it, the point of what Jesus is saying, pointing us to the power of the word of God, his exhortation to pay careful attention to how we listen, is that it is God's working on us through the word that forms in us what happens in the good soil, a noble and a good heart, steadfast endurance. Those who listen with the ears of faith are trusting that it is God working in them to form all of these things in their heart, in their life. A noble and a good heart. God gives us that as his spirit works through the word. In Romans, the book of Romans, Paul tells us that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Notice that that is a passive verb, isn't it? We are are transformed. Something else transforms us. What is it? It's God's word that transforms us. And you see the, the, the matchless power and might of God's word. Even in our text before us, right? Jesus says, whoever has, more will be given. And that alludes back to in the parable of the sower where Jesus says the seed of the word of God when it is planted in good soil brings forth a crop of a hundredfold. There is an abundance when it is God who is working in us through his word. This is the Christian life. This is what it's all about to sit under God's word and to let him work in in us by his spirit working through the word. All that we need for faith and life is found in God working in us through the word, all that we need for faith and life. One of life's greatest needs, one of life's greatest blessings and necessities is family. And we find out in in the end of this chapter, or the end of this passage, that, that all that is needed for that, the eternal and the heavenly family, is also dependent upon the word of God. It is the word of God that creates the ultimate and eternal family. It's wonderful as we trace the biblical story. We've celebrated it this morning, God's covenant. We see that promises of redemption are are received by families and then given through families to our children. Great and wonderful truth that we find all throughout scripture. The apostle Paul tells us that our, our children are set apart and yet we know that in a fallen world, the family is often, sadly, not a place of safety but of hurt and sorrow. Thus, at the end of this passage, Jesus shows us that what he has come to do and what happens through the power of the word of God is that the front door of the household of God is opened through Jesus Christ. That's what he has come to do, to open the front door of the household of God and to reconcile us to his father and to make him consequently our Father. We read in verse 19 that Jesus' mother and brothers were trying to press through the crowd and people thought that Jesus would have reserved a spot for them. So they, they, they tell Jesus that your family's trying to come through. They're looking for the VIP backstage passes, the seats right in front, the, the free food that's off to the side, right? They're related to the star of the show, so they're expecting that they will get the special treatment. But Jesus does not respond in the way that most people would have respected or would have expected. Excuse me. Jesus' response clues us in to something. 
It reminds us of the importance of his divine calling. It reminds us of what Jesus has been called to do by his heavenly father. And that his mission in the world to seek and to save the lost, to bring many into the household of God, is that which is primary in what he is doing. Jesus says that those who are related to him in the deepest sense are those who hear the word of God and who do it. Again, a reference to the parable of the sower, as Jesus speaks of those who not only hear, but hear in faith, and God produces in them a fruitful heart, a heart that is productive through the word. It is these that Jesus says who are the family of God, because before he was born on this earth, before he was given the name Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus was the perfectly beloved son of God. He shared a special intimacy with his heavenly father that no one else did. It was only the son of God who could ever bring us into the household of God. Imagine that there's a prince walking through his father's kingdom and he's walking down a street in an impoverished area and he sees a young orphan beggar boy and her little sister And imagine this prince has compassion on these two orphan children. and He he gathers them up in his arms and and he brings them to the gate of his father's palace. Are the guards going to stop this prince? No, because this prince has the authority to enter into his father's house. And he brings them into the palace and he puts a robe on their back and he gives them a seat at his father's table and he speaks to his father and says, I will account For these two children. I will take care of all of their needs. This is what our Savior does. It was only Jesus who could bring us home to his heavenly Father. And that's what Jesus is teaching us here at the end of this passage. And when we look to him in faith, when we abandon all self-righteousness, when we trust in what he has done, when we trust in the authority that he has to enter into his Father's kingdom... When we trust all of that, he gathers us up and he brings us to the palace of his father. This is good news then. This is good news whether you have had the immeasurable blessing of a wonderful family life or not. Whether your family pointed you to salvation in Jesus Christ from your earliest days or not. The blessing of covenant families is something that can hardly be measured. But the good news of the gospel is that God can overthrow the hearts of anyone, those who are furthest from him through his word and his spirit. At the beginning of this chapter, we have an example of that, don't we? Mary Magdalene, who seems like a woman who was shunned and exiled by everyone in her life, pushed out by everyone in her life. She has found a home traveling with Jesus at the beginning of Luke 8. And imagine the level of devotion and commitment that a woman like Mary Magdalene would have towards her Savior, Jesus. So then it is no surprise that at the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus has been laid in the tomb, and on the following Sunday morning, it seems as though the body of Jesus has been stolen, Mary stands outside the tomb of Jesus, weeping, weeping, unable to be consoled. Why? Why is Mary so broken up? Because her very life was bound up with the life of her Savior. As long as Jesus was living, she had hope that she would live too. But now Jesus has been killed. His body is apparently gone and she weeps. 
But then, Jesus comes to her. She hears him say, with perfect love and tenderness, just her name, he says, Mary. And she recognizes him when Jesus speaks her name. And she reaches out to touch her Savior. She's overcome with joy and with gladness. And, with, and her emotions overtake him. She reaches out to touch Jesus. Jesus says, do not touch me. Not because he needed to stand far away, be aloof from Mary. He says, do not touch me because he must ascend to the Father's right hand first. In other words, the intimacy that Jesus was about to enter with his eternal rest in heaven was something that the Spirit would then grant Mary as a down payment, as a guarantee for the ultimate intimacy that she will have in eternity with Jesus. So he says to Mary, go and tell my brothers, interesting, right, family term, go and tell my brothers that I must go to my father and your father. It's the first time Jesus says anything like that. I must go to my father and your father. And what Jesus is teaching us in that encounter with Mary Magdalene is because uh, since he has been raised to new life, He will grant us the intimacy of family bonds which he enjoys with his Father. In order to do that, he must go to the Father and send the Holy Spirit as the guarantee that one day we will all experience the fullness of God's kingdom. We will share in the perfect bond of fellowship with the Father and the Son. One day, we will be with our Savior and enter his perfect rest. Perhaps then, as we close Perhaps you find yourself despairing, just like Mary. Perhaps you stand outside the tomb of your dashed hopes and dreams. Perhaps you stand staring into a maze of struggles with sin, struggles with unanswered questions about sickness or the future or broken relationships. Perhaps you or your loved ones continue to battle illness, and it is so, re- so relentless that there seems to be No end in sight. Perhaps this week you are mourning the untimely death of a friend or a family member, a loved one. But if we will stand with Mary, if we will stand with her outside the tomb of Jesus and see what she has finally, what she was finally able to see. If we could look into the face of death, into the empty tomb where Jesus was, we would see that he, our Lord, has been to the grave before us. And coming out again, that he has left the place transformed, transfigured, making out of it by the grace of his resurrection a house of life, a family home, the very gate of heaven. The mortality which we all face for those who are in Christ is no longer a place of pure sorrow. But to those who cling to Christ in faith, who listen to the word of God with ears of faith, trusting that it is God who forms in us, all of the things which we need. Those who cling to Christ in faith, our mortality is the gate through which we enter the kingdom and the household of God. This is the kingdom that advances and is built through the humble preaching of God's word, a kingdom built as the Spirit works in our hearts by God's power as we hear the word and are set out by God's grace to live as he tells us. The book of Hebrews says that because of what Jesus has done for us in living, in dying for our sins, and being raised to new life, he is therefore not ashamed to call us his brothers, to call us his sisters. Even though this world has been turned, down, turned upside down 
by human sin, even though this world seems to be moving ever more towards chaos. The author of Hebrews says that even though we read Psalm 8 and the order that seems to be present there doesn't always seem to be present in the world in which we live, he says that all things, even now, have been put under the authority of Jesus and that we can sing the name of Jesus Christ both now and forevermore. The name of matchless worth. How great is the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your gospel. We give you thanks that through your word you teach, you empower, you strengthen, you create in us the character, the virtue, all of those things which we need to walk along our pilgrim way. By your spirit, illumine this passage to us. Impress its meaning upon our hearts. For your honor, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's join together and sing Psalter hymnal number 13.